0: Well, let me say again, good morning and welcome to you. I'm so glad you're here. Isn't it exciting? The first Sunday of Advent. Uh, thank you, choir and orchestra, Brother Chuck. What an exciting uh, time and what a, what a way to begin worship. I mean, the house of the Lord is beautiful. Uh, to, to whoever put the star at the top of that tree, thank you for your faith and your boldness. You're a model for all of us. I have managed to brush up against some decoration and noticed I'm covered in glitter. So this sermon is fabulous uh, in terms already. Uh, It's just wonderful. It's great. So so the four Sundays leading up to Advent, uh, excuse me, leading up to Christmas are traditionally called Advent. And it was on my heart to do this series leading up to Advent all about the family tree of Jesus looking at the genealogy of Jesus and uh, how that will lead us to the Christ child, how in the same way it will lead us to uh, Christmas. We find the family tree of Jesus in two of the Gospels, one in the Gospel of Luke and one in the Gospel of Matthew. So I could have you open to either one, but I thought, since your Bible wants to open to Matthew automatically anyway— Let's just glance at Matthew's. And what I'm going to do is in each of these four messages leading up to Christmas, on each of these four Sundays, I'm going to zoom in on one of the characters from the genealogy of Jesus. Then we'll zoom back out. We'll we'll locate that person in the biblical record. We'll look at them in Scripture and then see what they have to say to us, not only about the message of Christmas, but ultimately about the message of the gospel. So one of the things you'll immediately notice about Jesus' family tree is that there is no attempt whatsoever to cover up any of the uh, unsavory characters on the family tree. You know, uh, some of your family trees may have some branches with some bad apples, and we uh, tend to not highlight those. Usually we're very proud of our ancestry, but have you ever noticed we conveniently focus on those heroes of our history? You know, we don't talk about those in our lineage or genealogy that might have been truly wicked. Vic Pence tells a funny story about how he sent off for his family history, he writes, having always sensed a certain nobility in my nature I eagerly sent off that check a while later I got a notebook back in the mail as I started reading it began on a very promising note it said the first members of the Pence family arrived on our American shores about the time of the American Revolutionary War and I thought hey this is great patriots then the sentence continues, to fight on the side of the British as Hessian mercenary soldiers. <laughs> After they lost the war, they fled to Nova Scotia. After things cooled back, they settled, they snuck back in, settled in Pennsylvania. He writes, I sent 50 bucks to find out my ancestry and it cost me a hundred to hush it up. <laughs> We wouldn't brag about those kinds of things or put a poster in our home. That's what's amazing about the family tree of Jesus. Not only does Matthew not cover up the unsavory parts, he leans into them. He he wants to make sure we don't miss in the lineage of Jesus there are these unsavory characters. There's weak and poor and sinful, putting it mildly, to put it questionable character. To put it bluntly, there's adulterers, human traffickers, outsiders who had no religious upbringing at all. Basically, Matthew is saying from the very first page of the New Testament, God is not sending a, a trophy of, of, of human pedigree. He is sending a Savior. And so, that's a word for you today. Look, if you've if you've thought about religion all backwards, if, if you're self-made and you're put together and you can do it on your own and you're not sick enough to need Dr. Jesus, then I'm not sure Jesus has much for you. But if you're weak and you have been in big trouble and you have messed up and you know you don't have a prayer, oh, let me tell you, then he's a friend of sinners. See? And you've got, you've got hope, In Jesus, It's almost like like we think God is afraid to jump into our mess. Did you know on June 5th, 1978, Matt Woodley writes about the story of a a seven-year-old boy named Martin Turgeon slipped off a wharf and fell into the Prairie River in Canada. At least a dozen adults saw him struggle for a few moments before he sank and drowned. Why didn't anyone dive in to save him? Because just upstream, a plant used to dump raw sewage right into the river. The water was dirty, dangerous to your health. So nobody jumped in to save Martin Turgeon. It's easy at times to view God as one of the onlookers on the wharf of the Prairie River. It's like we we think God looks at us and says, "Look, I'm not diving in to the mess of your life until you get out of that putrid river. I'm a holy God, so you clean up your act first. Then I'll accept you. Then I'll embrace you. Then I'll love you." But This genealogy in Matthew, we meet a God who was and is. The message of Emmanuel, God with us. The message of Christmas. Is it not that God is willing to plunge into the mess of human sin and sorrow? He's willing to enter in. Here's a God who says, I'm coming after you. Before you get out of the river and clean yourself up, I will dive in. So... In today's character, we're going to see in each week how you've got a character who's in the mess of sin or who even caused the mess of sin. But Christmas is a story about how a loving God would enter into that mess with grace and mercy and love. We want to focus this morning, we meet him early in the genealogy, we want to focus on a character named Judah. Judah. Look at verse 2. You'll find him in verse 2. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Let's just do a little refresh. Some of you, this will be review. Others of you, right, it wouldn't hurt you to hear it again. Who is Judah? It says Judah is the son of Jacob. So Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had these 12 sons. Here's where it gets tricky. Jacob later gets a new name. And so you got Jacob has two names in the Bible. Jacob is also known as Israel Israel is Jacob, Jacob is Israel. That will help you in all your reading of the Psalms and all all that stuff about you're the God of Jacob. That's exactly the same thing as saying you're the God of Israel. We tend to think of Israel as a place, but remember, before Israel was a place, Israel is a dad. Israel is a person. He's a father. And he's got these 12 sons, and each of the 12 sons grow into these massive families that are eventually so big, they call them the 12 tribes. That's why, have you ever heard of the 12 tribes of Israel? It's the exact same thing as saying the 12 sons of Jacob. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons of Jacob. Same thing. So we're going to focus in on one of these sons. His name is Judah. And that's the one through whom the line of the Messiah comes uh, through Judah of the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Israel. And so we're going to examine his life in three acts. And what I want you to take away today is this hope. You might say it like this, it's not how you start the race, it's how you finish. Your past does not determine your future. Where you've been does not necessitate where you have to go. And we learn that in the story of Judah. It's good news today for anyone who's had a rocky start, for anyone who maybe has some skeletons in their closet. Skeletons in the closet means there's something way back there. The bones are still there. Everything else is decomposed. But there's skeletons in the closet. Some of you have skeletons in the closet that still have meat on the bones. It's fairly fresh, right? right? It's still there. All right. So for everybody who feels that way, for everybody who feels like, is there still time? Is there still hope? Can I still change? Is it even possible to change? Or maybe you've given up on somebody. People don't change. Has cynicism crept into your life? People don't change. It doesn't matter. Why bother? This is a word for anybody who feels that way because it starts, Act One, in a hopeless beginning. If you're a note taker, I'll give you three sort of subtitles. We'll look at these chapters in Genesis, but the first is gonna be Act One. We'll call it the hopeless beginning because from all human appearances, it certainly does look hopeless. You probably know the story well. The book of Genesis reads like a soap opera, so much family drama. Why? Well, because you have a real God dealing with real fallen humans. Uh, the Bible is not this uh, uh, book of uh, uh, heroes. It's not a morality play. No, you look at the book of Genesis, the only hero in the book of Genesis is God. So pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37. The, the, the father of this family, Jacob, whose, whose other name was? Israel, very good class. Yeah. Israel's Jacob. He's got a real problem. And uh, uh, one of the things that causes a lot of dysfunction in his family is he's got a problem with, quite frankly, favoritism. Yeah, he makes one child the favorite. It's obnoxious when you read it. I can't imagine being one of these brothers. He favorites one son above the rest. His name is Joseph. So look at, pick up the story in Genesis 37, 3. We'll bounce around from anywhere from 37 to 44. We'll, we'll cover some scriptures, but uh, you'll want to be in that area in Genesis there. Start in 37, verse 3. Now Israel, his name is also Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons. There it is right there, his favoritism. Because he was the son of his old age. In other words, he had Joseph. He's one of the the youngest. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, how did they react? They hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. They didn't have a kind word to say. All that hatred in his heart. To make matters worse, we learned Joseph was a bit of a tattletale. He was bringing bad reports on the brothers, as if all that's not enough. He had these God-given dreams, and he didn't have a lot of tact in sharing them. God gave him these dreams that one day, he's, he, he's telling his brothers, like, yeah, it was the craziest thing in this dream. It was like it was like we were all sheaves of grain, and we were all standing up like stalks of wheat. But then, like, my sheaf of grain grew taller than all of yours— and all of your sheaves bowed down to me. What do you make of that, guys? Now, do you think the brothers were like, oh, do go on. Tell tell us more. No, look at verse 5. Now, Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. It's like they let hatred boil and fester. And watch this. You need to know this. That's what hatred, if if you're dealing with hatred right now, hatred will not stay put. Hatred, what it does in your heart, it doesn't remain small. It tells you it will. You can deal with me. I'll just remain like I am. No, like a cancer, hatred seeks to grow and choke out all the healthy stuff inside of you. And it raged long enough that it boils over into what Jesus says will happen in in the Sermon on the Mount. That's why he warns, don't even have anger in your heart because it can boil over into murder. And sure enough, it raged long enough it boils over into full-blown murder. And the 11 brothers, basically the 11 of the 12 sons of Jacob, have have had to go way far out into the country to do the hard work of shepherding. I'm I'm collapsing uh, some here uh, uh, to to tell the story here, uh, summarizing. So they've gone, uh, 11 of the 12 have gone way out doing the hard work of shepherding, way out there in the country. But of course, one boy didn't have to go out there uh, because that's hard work. Uh, Joseph got to stay home. All right, so you see the favoritism. Eventually, dad sends Joseph out to check on the brothers. You so Imagine he's loaded up with some food, and he's going to go out and check on the brothers. And they see him, verse 18. Pick up the action in verse 18. When they saw him, they saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. In other words, they begin plotting, even from way off in the distance. They said to one another, here comes that dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say, Then they already planned their cover-up. We will say, a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. You hear the hatred in their voices? I mean, they could have gotten away with it. They're, they're somewhere way out, the Bible tells us, in Dothan. <laughs> Who's ever heard of Dothan, right? i tell you this, what happens in Dothan stays in Dothan. Because apparently they, they've got this whole thing figured out and he's going to die. They, they won't discover the body. Now, the oldest Reuben says, let's don't kill him. Let's just, let's just throw him into one of the dry cisterns. I don't, know, I don't know. Maybe his plan was to come get him later and, and, and bring him back as a prize to dad. I, I don't know. But they strip him of his coat of many colors and do just that. They throw him into this deep. Can you imagine? There was, there's there not been enough rain to fill it up. So it's just this dry cistern, this dreadful fall. And then, verse 25, and this is cold-blooded, then they sat down to eat. Now, Joseph is bleeding, no doubt, at least broken some bones on the way down as they shoved him into a cistern. And now he knows he's dead. He's going to die of starvation. There's no way out. He's screaming and begging for his life. I'm not just being dramatic. Later in Genesis 42, we're told, this is what happened when our brother was crying out to us. He, we know, literally, Joseph had been crying out. Simeon, you can imagine his terror and panic and he's broken and probably bleeding. Simeon, Levi, Dan, anybody, Dan, he's begging for his life. So while he's tortured and screaming, they're having lunch. Let me tell you, if, if you can sit down and have a meal while your own brother is begging for his life, you are cold-blooded. What it means is uh, your uh, uh, hatred has dulled your conscience. Your conscience doesn't function anymore. You've silenced it enough and dulled it enough that finally it's like, fine, I won't bother you anymore. And that's where we find Judah. Judah's about to step in and make his appearance. And brace, brace yourself, it is not good. Looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Right? So you imagine these nomadic traders making their way with their camels, bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother our own flesh, and his brothers listen to him. You hear that? Guys, 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 let's not kill him. We just want him gone. But there's more than one way to do that. We don't profit. We don't gain anything if we just kill him. Let's sell him into a vicious slave trade. You see the self-righteousness, right? Guys, we cannot murder him. Let the Egyptians do that, right? Guys, we're not murderers. We're human traffickers, Okay. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. And they took Joseph to Egypt. Uh, little footnote, you wonder why 20 shekels? It's not like you can, you can break that. What, how would that divide evenly? Remember, Reuben is gone. Joseph is the one they sold. That leaves 10 brothers, two shekels each. The point is they profited. Oh, they profited. At what cost? Devils always weren't willing to make a trade, right? And they profited from this. But at what cost? What did it cost them? Do you remember Jesus says, What's that worth to trade for sin? What is that worth? He says, Well, what if you could gain a little bit of money? What if you could gain a lot of money? Do you remember in Matthew 16 or Mark 8, if you're tired of Matthew, it's the same thing. Do, do, you, do you remember when? Uh, Do you remember when Jesus asked this question? He says, what does it profit a man? He didn't say just a little bit of money or a little bit. He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses or forfeits his own soul? The rhetorical question there, the answer is obvious. You've gained nothing. But for Judah, the deal just had to be made. He was sick of Joseph getting to live the life he felt he deserved. And so what he did is perfectly clear. He sacrificed Joseph's life for his. You can hear Judas thinking, clear as a bell. If it's got to be him or me, I choose me. It's his life for mine. You know what happens next, the lies, the deception, the cover-up. They take Joseph's coat, they dip it in goat's blood, and since there was no DNA testing back then, when they present it to their father Israel, or Jacob, and, and say, look, a wild animal must have gotten poor Joseph. And you hear, like, they're almost blaming him too. I mean, you, you sent him out to Dothan to look for us. It's kind of on you too, Dad. But I guess, I mean, this is his coat, isn't it? And it's covered in blood, so, I mean, do the math. A wild animal must have got him it's humans that acted like wild animals that got him wasn't it so so sorry dad but i guess now we'll all be good now before we leave act 1 the hopeless beginning that, that's pretty hopeless just a couple application points i'll try to give you one application point i guess this one i have a, a bonus the first i want you to see is that judas was um, judas was gifted let me explain this a little bit judas was a gifted leader he had gifts I mean, look at the influence he has over his brothers. His brothers listen to him. Look at the resourcefulness. Hey, let's not just kill him. Let's let him be taken off of our hands this way. quick That's problem solving. That's quick thinking. He, I just want you to see, like, like, like give the devil his due, so to speak. Like, like he was gifted and wicked. That's the application point. As a leader, I just want to point out, you can be both gifted and wicked. T- too often, We look at people's gifts and we are impressed by gifts because gifts are what you're able to show to the the watching world. But watch this. God is not impressed by gifts. God looks at your heart. God looks at character. God is not impressed by gifts and talents. Why? Why? Because who do you think gave you those gifts and talents? They're from God. Always remember that. Don't look back and think, yeah, but I did really good. I was really gifted at that. Or look what I was able to accomplish because of the result of my talent or the result of my gift. Now, you want to look back and ask, but what about my character? In fact, if you think about it, if you're wicked, your giftedness only heightens your capacity for evil. Would you rather deal with a cyber criminal or a brilliant mastermind cyber criminal? Right? You see, the, you see the point. I'll give you a second bonus application, and this is all taken from Judah's life in the hopeless beginning. The only thing worse than the sin itself is the cover-up. It wasn't too late. I mean, if you think about it, it like, Joseph has not been murdered yet. He, there could have been repentance. It, 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 like, it's like there's all these U-turns to get off this road to perdition. But he doesn't take them. Instead, he chooses the lies, the deceit, the cover-up. His whole world is dysfunctional. His family's dysfunctional. His life is dysfunctional. So we are not surprised when it comes to act two, what we will call act two, the messy middle. So the hopeless beginning in Judah's life, not looking good. In fact, that's why I call it hopeless. looks hopeless. Now, act two, the messy middle. The messy middle, you can read about in Genesis 38. We meet someone else in that messy middle named Tamar, who's also in the genealogy in Matthew 1. I'll summarize it for you because it is messy. Let me just say it this way. Judah commits, in Genesis 38, Judah commits unspeakable immorality. Now, we're not surprised by this. After what we've just seen in Genesis 37, Judah shows us Judah is all about Judah. Self-gratification. It's all about him. And ironically, when the woman, Tamar, is discovered to have committed this immorality, didn't know that Judah gets all self-righteous and wants to have her burned. Capital punishment. Capital punishment for the exact same sin he's committed. He's just covered it up. Isn't that how sin is? Sin not only kills and destroys, but it blinds us and it makes us unable to see our own sin. We get really judgmental on the sin of others. That's what sin does. But at the last minute, she produces incontrovertible evidence. She says, the guilty party is whoever owns this signet, cord, and staff. This would have been a personalized way to seal a document, that signet. It would be like the equivalent today of saying, okay, well, then the guilty party is whoever belongs to this driver's license, credit card, and car keys. Whose are these things? Proof of who you are. And just fast forward Genesis 38, 25. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord And the staff, now the readers all know, it's it's Judah's stuff. But we all also know Judah at this point. So we say, okay, Judah, what's going to be this time? What's he going to do? We all know what he's going to do. He's going to deny. Think about any politician that gets caught in a scandal. What do they do? Wasn't me. Deny. Just deny it. How, or, or, you, know, uh, you know, make some big, long justification for why you had reason. How's Judah going to wiggle out of this one? Is he going to lie? That's what he did with Joseph. He's, he's obviously been given a lot of gifts. He's got a quick mind. He could have thought of a lot of different things. How did those get there, right? How's he going to lie? How's he going to lie his way out of this one? Instead, he does the most shocking thing imaginable, y'all. He full-on tells the truth. Then Judah identified him. And not, not a lot of justification, not a lot of cover-up. She's more righteous than I. He gives a reason, and the verse goes on to say he repents from what he had been doing. This is incredible. Now, just like in Act 1, Judah has commit, committed a dreadful sin. Just like in Act 1, he has done wrong. But we know God must have done something in Judah's heart because instead of denial and cover-up, this time there's a big difference. This time he tells the truth. Every commentator agrees. That little verse is an absolute turning point in the life of Judah. Now, let's bring it home. Well, what about you? Do you need a turning point this morning? Do you, are you in need of a fresh start? Well, here's your application from the messy middle. No matter how messy the road to redemption starts, with what Judah did, telling the truth. Tell the truth. (laughs) I think it was David Foster Wallace who remarked, the truth will set you free, but not until it's had its way with you. (laughs) It doesn't mean it's easy. But what about telling the truth to yourself this morning, admitting if there's been sin, calling it what it is, not sugarcoating it, telling it to God, repenting, and then tell it to a person you trust. Begin there. Tell the truth. That road to redemption leads to act three, what I'm calling the surprise ending. After all we've seen out of Judah, it's the surprise ending. Something has Change. There's, there's truth-telling. There's a, there's a confession. There's, not a bunch of justification, not a bunch of cover-up. Just tell them the truth and look, look. Fast forward. Okay, God has not forgotten about Joseph who'd been sold into slavery. In fact, as Genesis 38 is being told of Judah's immorality, it is no, no accident that Genesis 39 is told of Joseph's morality. When he's in the home of Potiphar, he reacts in every way the correct way, as opposed uh, uh, highlighting Judah's immorality. And yet, and yet, after this truth telling, Joseph's been sold into slavery. He ends up in Egypt because God is with him. You remember this story. God blesses Joseph through incredible ups and incredible downs. Eventually, he becomes second in command, second only to Pharaoh himself. So he's the second most powerful person in the known world. And in the providence of God, that word means the perfect plan of God. It means God knows what he's doing, even when we don't know what God is doing. In God's providence, he sends a famine. And wouldn't you know it, the only place in the world to buy any food is Egypt. So the brothers go to Egypt to buy grain. Not all the brothers, mind you, because old Israel, remember his name was also Jacob, Jacob Israel? He still had this bad habit of playing favorites. Once Joseph was gone, he assumed dead, he just makes a new favorite. Do you remember who? Little Benjamin. Benjamin. And so he says, send everyone back to Egypt to buy grain. And they all go back, not you, not you, little Benny, not you. You stay here with dad. The brothers are like, right? They go. Well... Joseph recognizes him, but he realizes Benjamin's not there. It's an incredibly dramatic story. I won't read it now today. You'll find it in Genesis starting in chapter 39 if you want to read it this afternoon. Joseph says to him, don't come back unless you bring the youngest boy, Benjamin. I think you're spies. I think you're lying. And the only way you can prove it to me is if you go back and bring this Benjamin, which the whole thing is contrived. How would that prove you're not a spy? Go bring me another person. Anyway, uh, so he says, I'm going to keep Simeon here to make sure you'll come back. I'll hold Simeon. I'll hold one of the brothers as collateral and make sure you go back. They go back. They tell their dad, Dad, I, we got we got to go back and get uh, and bring Benjamin. It's the only way that we can go back and we're all going to starve if we don't. And the dad says something remarkable. I've already lost one son. How can I lose another? No, we got to take Benjamin. No, I can't. He's. Uh, I might lose Benjamin. I've already lost one son. How can I lose another? Do you think, I always wonder, what does Simeon think of that comment? <laughs> Simeon's like, you know, you know i'm a son <laughs> stuck here anyway it, you see I me mean? it's completely dysfunctional uh, but god won't relent from the famine isn't that something famine is pain and god won't relent on the pain because he's up to something it's the pain that then forces jacob's hand fine we're all gonna die and i'll lose benjamin anyway if we're all dead so take benjamin back everybody they all go back He tells, uh, and and Joseph sees them, and he concocts this final test to see if there's been any change in these murderous brothers. And it's brilliant what he does. He tells the guys they can have a special feast while they wait for their bags to be loaded up with grain. He loads all the bags with grains, and then he realizes, what, 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 what set all this off? What is their trigger? What they react to is favoritism. Favoritism of the two children of Rachel, Joseph and Benjamin. So while they're having the feast, he heaps on the favoritism. Trigger them. Look at Genesis 43, 34. The very end of 43, and then we'll close in, in 44. But, but look at, look at, 40, look at, cha- look at chapter, chapter 43, verse 34. He's heaping on the favoritism, literally. Look, as they're having the feast, this is like when you go into the truck stop to have a, a meal while your semi-truck is being loaded with fuel, right? They're loading you up with the grain. You come in and have this feast. Portions were taken to him from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. And they drank and were merry with him. You just imagine Joseph telling them, and really ham it up when you give it to them, right? Oh, here, here. I call this dish the dish of many colors, you know, or, or something, right? To really try to, like, trigger, right? It's a secret test. It's brilliant. You see, you see what he's up to, right? So <clears throat> you, the reader may not see what he's up to yet, so he secretly sets up a test. He plants evidence. While their bags are being loaded, he plants his own silver cup, very, very valuable, and he puts it in Benjamin's bag to make it look like Benjamin had stolen it. You wonder, what's he up to? They all say their goodbyes, and when they're not too far away from the city, Joseph has them arrested. They go out, they say, search the bags. They're like, you can search all of us. If you find anything, you can kill us because we're innocent. They're so certain of their innocence. Everybody. No, one of you stole the silver cup after all the good I've done to you. Right, all totally being framed. And sure enough, they open all the sacks, and there it is in Benjamin's sack. And all the brothers are like, Benny, what'd you do? And Benjamin's like, I didn't do it! Right? To which every, right? If you've ever been like the, like the third born or the last born, you know, like, I promise it wasn't me! Nobody believes you. The brothers, are, they're certain, right? Now, remember, the reader knows Benjamin is innocent. The brothers do not. That's very important for this story. So there they are all before Joseph. And they say, we'll all become your slaves. Clearly, I, we'll all become your slaves. That alone is remarkable to Joseph. But Joseph says no, because he's setting up the exact test. For verse Chapter 44, verse 17. But Joseph said, no, no, no. Far be it from me that I should do so. No, I'm not going to punish all y'all. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. You see what he's done, don't you? You see what he's recreated. Joseph has perfectly recreated that fateful scenario years ago in Dothan by the well. Go ahead, guys. It's simply his life for yours. Just like you left Joseph into slavery so that you could go be at peace with your father, you get the same opportunity here. Just leave Benjamin. After all, he's the new favorite Here's a chance to be rid of him forever. Everyone knows how much you hate favoritism. In fact, this is even easier. This time, last time you had to do the cover up and the coat and dip it in the blood. This time you don't have to cover up anything. He's literally taking, he's giving you a mo, a complete alibi. You can have a complete get out of retribution free card given to you by Joseph himself. You don't even have to lie. He stole the cup, right? You got the evidence dead to rights. Just walk away. The guilty one will pay and you can be with your father go ahead all you have to do is sell out your one brother it's easy his life for yours and of all people it's judah and what he says next is the longest recorded speech in all of genesis did you know that in all five books of the torah you have the first there you have genesis this is the longest recorded speech in genesis we won't read it all, but let me set it up. Then Judah went up to Joseph and said, O oh my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. Let not your anger burn against your servant, for you're like Pharaoh himself. So he starts with a proper, respectful introduction. And then look at what he says. Start in verse 30. It's a little difficult to interpret because so much of this is in third person. You know, all that stuff about, that it's disrespectful before the king to be like, I'm going to do this and you're going to do this. So you say things like, my Lord, my servant, my, you know, let your servant do this. But you'll be able to follow Look at what he's saying. Now, therefore, as soon, if we do this, if I leave Benjamin here and we go back, as soon as, I go to, as soon as I come to Jacob, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy's not with us, then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees the boy's not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father father, saying, if I don't bring him back to you, I'll, I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. In other words, I, I promise I'm going to bring him back. It's his life for mine. Now therefore, verse 33, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. And there it is. Did you see that in verse 33? Let me stay as your slave. Let Benjamin go free to the father. If you've ever read The Hunger Games, the author makes you instantly love this hero, Katniss Everdeen, because near the beginning of the book, when her sister is being forced to go as a tribute to the capital district's games where everyone knows she'll be killed, her sister steps in and says, I volunteer as tribute. Take me instead. And it's a beautiful scene, and it makes you love this character. Well, that's just from a, a novel. That's fiction. This is real life. Here's a human who this time is saying, I volunteer as tribute. I'll go in his place. It's my life for his, which of course is the exact opposite of his life for mine. Look at that verse one last time. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord. Let the boy go back with his brothers. Of all the brothers, it's Judah. Greater love has no man than this, that a man would lay down his life for his friends. Hey, Judah started out pretty hopeless, but it's... It's hard to see that as anything but heroic. It's not how you start the race. It's how you finish. And, 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 and that, that, that's the application point. Because of God, that's the message of Christmas. Your past does not determine your future. That's the last application point I have for you. Because of God, because of his grace working in your life, your past does not have to determine your future. Judah knows Benjamin is guilty. Now, again, the reader knows Benjamin's not guilty. But for all, for all Judah knows, Benjamin is guilty. And yet there he is, offering himself up in the guilty one's place. Here's Judah. I thought Judah would be the first one to blame or say, hey, you know what? That's great. You take Benjamin. We'll all go free. We get the grain. We get the freedom. We can go back to be dad. No, he says, no, no, I'll stay. Let Benjamin go back. The unchanging God's been slowly, quietly, methodically working to change hearts. Don't ever let your heart become so cynical that you refuse to believe that God still changes people. Don't give up on other people. Don't give up on yourself. Tell the truth. This story is so much more than just Judah and his personal transformation, of course. This story clearly foreshadows Christmas. This story, it makes all the sense in the world why This is in Jesus' family tree, doesn't it? Do you see where I'm going? How God plans to transform every heart? Have you ever wondered why? You know, the musicians are going to come and lead us in a time of response. I want to prepare our hearts, but I want us to center around this. Because we're going to bring each message back to this point. Why did Jesus come through the lineage he did? Okay, so, so he had to be child of Abraham, right? Abraham had Isaac, and Isaac, he had Jacob. So everybody agrees he had to be child of Abraham. But why did he come through the lineage he did? Of all the children of Israel, wouldn't you, wouldn't you and I think, maybe this is only me, but wouldn't you and I think, I would not have picked Judah, right? I would have said the Messiah, the king, the conquering hero. I would have said he would come through the lineage of Joseph. Because Joseph's the one who was, you know, uh, uh, always making the right choice and how, all oh, his purity when he was in the house of Potiphar, his, his, his uh, devotion and integrity, was, he was in jail and he never lost the faith. I would have thought, Joseph, uh, no? Or maybe I would have said, well, then maybe one of his sons, I don't know if you know, but one of the sons of Israel was Levi. Why was he important? Levi is the priestly lineage, Right. Uh, Aaron comes through Levi and so Jesus was our high priest I would figure well then he'd come through the line of Levi but he doesn't it's Judah why because of all the things Judah did this is what we remember Judah offered himself as a substitute so that he would be cut off from the father and little Benjamin could go and be with his father Now you might say, yeah, but Judah Judah did all that fine, but he deserved to be cut off. And you might be right, but there is one coming in the line of Judah, a true and better Judah, Matthew points to, who didn't deserve to die, who didn't deserve to offer himself up to slavery. This line of Judah, Jesus of Nazareth, who didn't deserve any punishment, stretched out his arms on Calvary's cross, allowing himself to be cut off from the Father so that you and I, like little Benjamin, could go home and be with our Father. And that good news, that gospel good news, that is how you begin telling the truth. That is how you begin the road to redemption, understanding what he has done for you and your salvation. And that is the message of Judah from the family tree of Jesus. Let's pray. God, grant to anybody in here who is wrestling with their past, the enemy is accusing filled with condemnation. Lord, I pray that today could be a day of repentance and confession and truth and moving forward. God, grant that today you would remind them of your grace, like you worked in the life of Judah, like you worked in this uh, genealogy showing us that you're not not waiting for us to get cleaned up. You're entering into our mess, seeking to save. Thank you, O Lord, that you are with us and that you will save, you are a friend of sinners. We pray this in Jesus' name.